If this is your first time listening to Presumed Guilty, stop, go back, and start with episode one. Everything will make a lot more sense. Last time on Presumed Guilty. Helen was found on her back, wearing a blue nightgown, stockings, a watch, a mother's ring, and her wedding band. A washcloth covered her face. Underneath it, an afghan was tied around her head so tightly it smashed her nose to the side. Helen Wilson had been raped and suffocated, her hands bound. Helen's family would agonize for four years, wondering who killed their mother and grandmother until justice seemed delivered. On November 9, 1989, a jury returned guilty verdicts against the six people charged in her death. But everything the family thought that they knew about Helen Wilson's death was turned upside down by DNA testing in 1998. From the Lincoln Journal Star and their award-winning project, this is Presumed Guilty. I'm Elizabeth Rembert and I'm telling the story of the cold case investigation that sent six innocent people to jail for the murder of Helen Wilson. We looked at the crime and initial investigation in episode one, and in this episode, we'll follow Bert Searcy, the hog farmer turned investigator, as he pulls in suspect after suspect to assemble the so-called Beatrice Six. At the end of the last episode, we heard from confidential informant number one, a 17-year-old girl who told Bert a woman named Joanne Taylor had bragged to her about killing Helen Wilson as the two watched police cars gather outside Helen's apartment building before the school day started. Joanne mentioned another name to this 17-year-old girl, Lobo. Joseph White was known as Lobo in the 1980s, but his journey to Beatrice started when he was still known as just Joe. He was born the second of six children in Alabama to a father who worked as a maintenance man and a mother who assembled telephones. He had a stable upbringing. He graduated from high school in 1981 and joined the army to see what was outside of Alabama. He served in South Korea for two years with the army, but his love of bourbon and cokes got him discharged after he failed alcohol rehab in 1984. Then, he was 21 with no obligations. His thumb got him from Texas to Hollywood Boulevard. There, the six-foot-four Alabaman worked at a studio that made low-budget gay movies and magazines. He spent two months posing for photos and acting as a nude wrestler. He went by Lone Wolf Bronson as a wrestler, which simply became Lobo. He worked to the streets when his studio job dried up, and there he met Ada Joanne Taylor and her boyfriend. Soon, they were all a group, living in cheap motels and surviving on what they could hustle. Joanne was from North Carolina, and she and Joe bonded over their southern roots. One day, Joanne mentioned Nebraska, where she had a daughter she wanted to go see. In late 1984, Joe came with Joanne to Beatrice. He would return to Alabama in March 1985, but not before falling into a loose community of young adults living on the edge in Beatrice. Some drank, some took drugs, and some worked dead-end jobs to survive with their limited skills and prospects. Joe spent his days at the r bar, nursing beers and dreaming of a better life. 
He spent his night staying with a woman whose mother prostituted in truck stops. Or another who dreamed of being a country singer. And another who just wanted to be a modern hippie. When he struck out at those places, he'd stay with a friend of Joanne's, Thomas Winslow. After Bert heard about Joanne and Lobo from the 17-year-old girl, Tom was his next stop. He knew Joanne and Joe had frequently stayed with the 18-year-old high school dropout, and Bert asked Tom what he knew. Tom said he was working at Marshall's truck stop the night of the murder, but when Bert checked the claim, his boss said Tom had called in sick that night. In Bert's eyes, that made Tom another suspect in the killing. But the case went cold. And that wasn't a surprise to Bert. He'd worked under the Beatrice police chief in the early 80s when he was still with the force, but he resigned in 1982 and left a note saying that the department was poorly run. Five years after Bert left the police department, and with a new energy from investigating Helen Wilson's murder, he was hired by a newly elected sheriff as a deputy. His new badge gave him more authority and time to heat up the cold case and follow the leads he'd developed as a private investigator. Sheriff Jerry DeWitt considered his new deputy a go-getter, who could be a good investigator. But the laid-back sheriff was put off by Bert's nervous energy. Later, Jerry would compare him to a fart in a skillet. The sheriff soon grew weary of Bert's preoccupation with the murder. Plus, it bothered him that Bert never put anything in writing. In fact, little was written down from Bert's private investigation. Once Bert did put his facts to paper, the sheriff agreed that there was enough for a full-time investigation. He met with the county attorney, who said, sure, put Bert on the case. Finally, the sheriff checked with the police department, because the case actually fell under the police's jurisdiction. He offered up everything his deputy had developed to the police chief, who, surprisingly, didn't want it. The deputy had the wrong people, the chief said. By 1988, with Bert officially on the case as a deputy and investigator, three years had passed without an arrest in the Helen Wilson murder and rape case. Then, Tom Winslow committed a crime that made waves to revitalize the investigation. Tom needed money, so he and Cliff Sheldon, a friend of his who used to live in Beatrice, came up with a plan to rob men in Lincoln Parks at night. They found a target in a motel clerk, and they arranged for a visit during one of the clerk's night shifts. Cliff beat the clerk with a tire iron, but the two failed to pry open the cash register and fled without a dime. They left the 51-year-old man bleeding on the floor. In custody, Cliff immediately offered information about the Wilson case. Look at Lobo and Joanne Taylor, he said. On January 15, 1989, Bert would return to confidential informant number one, who had first set him on the trail of Joanne and Joe White almost four years earlier. He convinced her to give a videotaped statement where she identifies herself as Lisa Brown. In the video, Lisa repeated her original story. Joanne had admitted to the murder while they stood near Helen's apartment at 7.30 a.m. the morning the widow's body was found. But she offered new details this time. Now, Joanne had shown off scratches as proof that she'd attacked the woman. 
And Lisa said that she'd frequently seen Lobo perform a trick where he ripped money in half. So maybe he'd been behind the torn $5 bill that was found in the apartment. In the new video, Lisa also said she'd been near the murder scene the night of the crime. She said she'd watched Joanne and Lobo get out of a car in Helen's apartment building parking lot at 10.18 p.m. on February 5th, 1985. She knew the time from a bank clock across the alley, and that time matched the time of death cited by a pathologist. Lisa said Tom Winslow had been there, too, with his girlfriend. Four years later, she even knew the color and style of each person's coats. She talked about the car, too. It was a 1972 green Oldsmobile with a brown top. That was the year, model, and style of Tom Winslow's car. Bert visited Tom in jail for the motel arrest on February 13, 1989. Tom said he'd loaned his car to Lobo and Joanne on February 5th, 1985, and he heard them talking about a crime the next morning at his apartment. Bert had also been working on a second confidential informant, Charlotte Bishop of Lincoln, who gave a videotaped statement on February 25th. Charlotte said she often shared her Beatrice apartment with Joanne, and on the day the widow's body was found, Joanne returned to the apartment and told Charlotte she and Joe may have been involved in the killing. Bert was armed with the statements from Lisa, Charlotte, and Tom as he began preparing arrest warrants for Joanne and Joe, along with Gage County attorney Richard Smith. In March, Bert and Richard visited Tom again in jail for a videotaped interrogation. At first, Tom told the same story. But then Bert prodded him further. Okay, I, I have a little feeling that maybe you know a little more yet than you're telling me. Am I right or wrong? Then the camera shuts off. When the taping resumes an hour later, Tom's changed his story. This is Deputy Sheriff Gage County Sheriff's Department now resuming the videotape statement of Thomas W. Winslow. This tape was stopped at 9:11. At first, he was repeating his old story that he loaned his car to Lobo and Joanne the night before Helen Wilson's murder. And when they returned it in the morning, he overheard them talking about a crime. Now, an hour after the tape breaks, he and his girlfriend entered Helen's apartment, along with Joanne and Lobo. He told Bert that almost immediately, Lobo and Joanne forced the old woman into the bedroom and shut the door. Tom and his girlfriend fled when they heard Helen's screams. The day after Tom's interview, Bert and other officers board a Nebraska State Patrol plane heading to Alabama, where Joe had settled after leaving Beatrice. They found him at 11.25 p.m. on March 15, 1989. Joe was sleeping in his Alabama house when the phone rang and a caller said the police were outside. He pulled on a pair of jeans and opened the door to see 20 riot guns and hear, Freeze! Raise your hands and kneel and lie down! He was under arrest for first-degree murder. When Joe came into the interrogation room in the Coleman, Alabama Police Department, he was cold and confused. But Bert was purposeful and unflinching as he began interrogations. He'd been on Joe's trail for years. Bert told Joe he'd arrested Joanne Taylor and that they'd found his fingerprints on the $5 bill in the apartment. In reality, there were no fingerprints. 
24 minutes into the interrogation, Joe said he wanted to see a lawyer. But the questions continued, which violated his right under the 1981 Supreme Court decision that allowed suspects to stop answering questions until they could talk to an attorney. The questions soon stopped, but not before Joe agreed to give blood, saliva, and hair samples. The investigators stayed south to arrest Joanne Taylor, who'd introduced Joseph to Beatrice in 1984 before moving back to North Carolina in 1985. Joanne was confused too, but unlike Joe, she talked through her confusion. This is audio between Joanne, Bert, and Beatrice Police Sergeant Sam Stevens from her interrogation tapes. They can be a little hard to hear, but bear with me. The Gage County Sheriff's Department taking a videotaped voluntary statement from Ada, ADA, Joanne, J-O-A-N-N, why we are visiting with you is in reference to the Helen Wilson case. Do you have any knowledge of an incident which occurred of the homicide of a lady who was known as Helen Wilson? I have some recollection. I was present at the time it happened. You did see something happen, didn't you? Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you weren't told that, were you? She strung out, exhausted, and crying in the videos. She told the Nebraska cops over and over she couldn't remember and that her personality disorder made it impossible for her to know what she did. Later, she said she'd worked with the authorities in her interrogations to, quote, bring back little bits of memory. Bert and Sam then helped her create a story out of those little bits of memory. The night Helen died, Joanne said she and Joe went to the widow's one-story white house early in the evening to do yard work. This was in February. Uh-huh. Now, Lobo wouldn't be doing yard work in February, would he? After a 20-minute gap in the interview videotape, Joanne's memory improves, just like how Tom's hour-long gap helped his story. The one-story White House became a three-story brick building. A summer evening for yard work becomes a bitterly cold winter night. From sobbing about how she remembered nothing of the rape and murder, Joanne says Joe and another boy stabbed a woman. Remember that in reality, Helen was suffocated. Even with the inconsistencies, they had plenty to justify flying Joanne back to Nebraska. Once in custody in Nebraska in March 1989, Bert showed her a photo lineup to identify more participants. She picked Tom, and then she said that his future wife was with them the night of Helen's death, too. Police arrested Tom the same day. Remember that in a conversation after his 1988 motel assault arrest, he'd said he was in Helen's apartment the night she died. Now, in 1989, he takes that back. He told Bert he'd lied. The part that I said I knew, that I was in the apartment and everything, that was not true because... Well, I don't believe that right now. You're lying. Okay? I've got people arrested. They're sitting there telling me exactly what happened. I wasn't in the... Bullshit, Tom. 
You were there. I got people telling me exactly what you did to that woman. Don't sit here and lie to me. I don't, I'm not going to listen to this shit. I know I'm not lying. How come everybody says you were? I don't know. And that's why I can't figure it out either, but I'm not lying. And I'm not going to do time and maybe death or something um, or something I need listen. to do. Bert was furious. His arrest warrants for Joe and Joanne were partly based on Tom's account. But Tom withstood the deputy's anger. He was not there when the widow died. So Bert goes back to Cliff Sheldon, Tom's old accomplice who worked with him to commit the motel assault. Cliff implicates Joanne, Joe, and Tom in the murder. He adds a few more names his own wife, Deborah Sheldon, and a young construction worker named James Dean. Bert arrests Deb Sheldon, who says yes. She went to the old woman's apartment with Tom, Joe, and Joanne that night. Deb was actually Helen Wilson's great-niece, and she said she got hurt, and her head was bleeding while the others attacked her great-aunt. Is everything you told us, is it the truth? Yes. Is it the truth to the best of your knowledge? The truth to the best of my knowledge. And you would testify to these facts that you've made known to us in court? Yes. The deputy couldn't believe the confession he'd received. He remembered reporting for work the next morning and telling his co-workers, this thing's gonna move. Now four suspects in, Bert moves on to Cliff's other recommendation, James Dean. The construction worker was celebrating his 25th birthday on April 15, 1989, when police swarmed him. He was under arrest for murder. He told police he knew the other suspects, but he was not in Helen Wilson's apartment the night she died. He held strong for two weeks until he learned he'd failed a polygraph test. Dr. Wayne Price, a Beatrice psychologist who also worked as a part-time deputy for the sheriff's office, evaluated James. Dr. Price said James repeatedly denied involvement in the murder, but he wrote this in a report. Quote, Dean began to realize that the polygraph was revealing, at least at the unconscious level, his awareness that he was present in the apartment, but could not reconcile his being present with the conscious belief that he was not there. The psychologist and deputy concluded James had likely witnessed Helen's death, but had repressed the memory. He'd delivered similarly damning evaluations in his private counseling of the other suspects, and he later said that he saw no conflict between his dual roles as a suspect's therapist and a deputy. The final domino fell with Kathy Gonzalez, the sixth piece of the Beatrice Six. She was cleaning about 120 pounds of squid when the police came for her on May 25, 1989, at McCormick's Fish House in Denver. Kathy had lived above Helen at the time of the murder and surfaced as a suspect during an interrogation of Deb Sheldon. In Denver, she told the Nebraska cops she knew nothing, but she still agreed to return to Gage County. Later, she'd say she decided to go home and tell the truth and she believed that the truth would set her free. She continued to deny involvement in Beatrice, but was frustrated by her inability to remember what others said she did. Like the others, she'd turned to Dr. Wayne Price to work through her memory block. Four years after Helen Wilson was buried, two years after the hog farmer became a deputy, 
Bert Searcy had six people behind bars. In the next episode, we'll watch as Bert's investigation goes into the courtroom and how Richard Smith, the Gage County prosecutor, will use the threat of capital punishment to turn these suspects against each other. We'll see how each coerced eyewitness testimony gave ground to a case with almost no physical evidence. The six convictions in the Beatrice Six case were the biggest of Richard Smith's career. And almost 30 years later, the accomplishment has only become more significant.